So, Mark. Yes. It's July right now. Yes. The most patriotic month. Yes. Like, some months have got their flag days. Arguably a very patriotic holiday. It's not a holiday if I don't get work off. Okay, then. Actually, thinking about that, that means only Christmas is a holiday, because that's the only day of the year Phil's is closed. (laughs) Well, sure, because Jesus was not an American, so he did not care about the 4th of July. It's true. This, though, is the month where people put weird American flags all over the place, so I figured we should do kind of a patriotic-y movie. But before we get into the one we're talking about this week, do you have a favorite, like, political or patriotic or America-y movie? So, in terms of, like, this movie is very political, and in terms of commenting on the American political system, one of my favorite movies is The Death of Stalin. That movie rules. That movie is fantastic, and while technically about the USSR, it is definitely saying a lot about how the US government works. It was hilarious. The performance of Steve Buscemi as Khrushchev was just out of this world. Jason Isaacs is amazing in that movie as Marshal Zhukov. Yeah, that was who I was going to say. He He just just bursts in in this military uniform and takes over the movie. He's in it for maybe 20 minutes, but those are the best 20 minutes. I love that movie. That was in my top 10 last year. Highly recommend it. One of the ones I thought of was actually also not about American politics, which is... A British movie I really love called The Deal, which is about Tony Blair and Gordon Brown as members of Parliament. It is the first in a trilogy about Blair. The most famous is the middle one, The Queen. I really like The Deal because it gets into like all the parliamentary negotiations. The stuff that The Phantom Menace promised us but failed to deliver on, if you know what I mean. Not enough Trade Federation discussion. There's exactly the wrong amount of Trade Federation discussion in that movie. There should either be a lot less or a lot more. And they should also have less stereotypically Asian aliens being the people controlling trade. Sure. In that movie, if you look at the Senate, one of the pods has like little ETs. What if they were the guys instead of the Pneumoidians? Would the rights have worked out for that? Great question. I guess Universal has the rights to ET. They're the studio that produced it. But they were able to swing it enough to put the ETs in there because Lucas and Spielberg are buddies. But I think taking that any further probably would have raised some questions. Most likely. Do you have any political movies you're a fan of? Or like America or patriotic or whatever it is. I have to say, when you asked me this question, the only thing that came to mind was in my Modern Dilemmas class in high school, we had to watch Born on the Fourth of July and talk about, you know, civil military relations and all that. But I just remember being like traumatized by Ted, um, not Ted Cruz, Tom (laughs) Cruz. There we go. In that movie. But um, that's literally the only thing that's coming to mind right now because I'm a TV person a lot of the time. I know that's blasphemy on this movie-themed podcast. I mean, we did do an episode condensing an entire series of a TV show. Okay. On the classic Renee Zellweger project, What If? That wasn't really an episode of We Love the Love, though. That was our spinoff podcast, Weg Tent. Indeed. Bringing to you live all Renee Zellweger's upcoming projects. We're going to keep updating it every time she does something, I guess? I mean, we do have to do Judy. One way or another, we will discuss Judy on this podcast. We probably won't do a full episode on it, but we'll talk about it. This is the public service America needs, I have to say. Indeed, we looked at the things that America was in need of in first 2017, then 18, now 19. And we said, oh, what the country needs is for two white men to speak regularly on their thoughts on the culture, specifically how romance works. And mostly Renee Zellweger. 
Yeah, I think the true service we provide this great nation is coverage of Renee Zellweger's illustrious career. And we're going to keep doing that. We've got some planned already for the fall. We're the highs excited and the lows. to uh, do what we can. We are done with her DreamWorks work, I believe. Yes. So the, the lows. lowest lows <laughs> seem to be out of the way. We have done Shark Tale and B-Movie, and boy, can it not get worse. I, I have seen can't. What If. What If! <laughs> anyway, I'm trying to think of any other... I have not seen a lot of the like classic American military films. I haven't seen Saving Private Ryan. Not like these are all super patriotic movies, because they're really about the horrors of war more than anything. Right. That's the thing, is, especially of late, a lot of American military movies are about how, like, things are not so great. You're watching something like The Hurt Locker, which is about PTSD, basically. A lot of these other, like, political movies, too, are things like All the President's Men, which are like, things are maybe not so great. You kind of have to go further back to something like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, that Frank Capra era of things. What did we watch with Jimmy Stewart basically giving the same performance? We watched Vertigo, in which Jimmy Stewart was in love with a murderer. No, the one you and I watched with your mom, where he was... Oh, we watched The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. That was it. Which is a really cool movie about the end of the West, and how you build a society and live in one that was founded on violence. Yes. Jimmy Stewart plays a... I think by the end of the movie, he becomes a senator of the new state formed in this movie and he is giving a similar performance but in that one they think he's a murderer but he's not so that makes him okay one of the ultimate shows of patriotism in any movie is i think the ending of white christmas when they celebrate the general and do that big show for him just to show him how much he's appreciated that movie rules i love that movie every christmas it was great until the minstrel song started and so then it was great after it it's a weird thing where like it's not a minstrel song they're singing about liking minstrel right that's the thing is it's a weird middle ground no one is in blackface but they're singing about how great blackface is it's an unusual element of that kind of issue it's is a weird thing to watch because it is just exactly in the middle it is still very bad, but they decided not to actually put anyone in blackface. Thank God. Ruin that movie. Danny Kaye's performance in that movie is incredible, though. Danny Kaye's performance in every movie I've seen him in is incredible. Fair. Anyway, should we start discussing the only rom-com I can think of about an American president? The American president? I was gonna say Dave works, but the whole point of Dave is that he's not the president. This is the only I can think of where it's actually about a government leader dating. Well, that was kind of the original pitch. So this movie started out in the early 80s as a pitch that a writer named William Reichert and then Robert Redford were shopping around Hollywood with the premise being the president elopes. And working on that, Reichert actually wrote a script on that premise that was more of like a screwball kind of deal. And Redford kept trying to get it made. He really (laughs) wanted to be in this movie. And that concept was eventually bought by Rob Reiner and Castle Rock. According to Reiner, they never looked at Reichert's script. They just liked the general concept of the president elopes. And Aaron Sorkin wrote a treatment for it and then was hired to write the full script. And at that point, Redford announced that he didn't want to do the movie anymore. And you read coverage from the time and it's not super clear why this was. Some of it says that Redford and Reiner just didn't get along as a personality clash. There are some people who say he wasn't as happy with the Sorkin draft because Redford felt that Sorkin and Reiner 
we're going to focus more on politics and less on just, like, screwball romance. Definitely not what happened. I do see where this movie is more political than what Redford was probably going for. And there's also a report from Entertainment Weekly that he turned it down because he'd really wanted Emma Thompson to be the female lead and she had said no. Oh my god, that would have been amazing, though. Annette Bennett is really good at this, but Emma Thompson is one of my favorite people. And this would have been Emma Thompson the same year as Sense and Sensibility. Oh my god. (laughs) So it seems to me that someone came up with the idea, what if the president was hot? And it went from there. Hot and single. Reichert then actually later went into WGA arbitration over this movie, arguing that he should have gotten a screenwriting credit. And he made the same argument against the West Wing a few years later. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast where we delve deep into the important issues of our day, like Mark and I do all the time with our weg tent and with everything else we dig into. And the issue that we keep coming back to that we can't get a solution to, but we're going to keep trying, we're going to needle people, we're going to try to swing them over to help us out, is does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot, or a one-scene flirtation, or if the movie sometimes can't decide if it's the main plot or a secondary one. Whatever it is, we will dig in, we'll see what's there, and I think we'll have a pretty good time. This week, as we have alluded to, we're discussing the 1995 film The American President. I think we may have more than alluded to this movie. (laughs) Directed by Rob Reiner and written by Aaron Sorkin. And to help us dig into it, we are joined by... Our very good friend, Allie. Hello, everyone. Allie is the reason Will and I know each other. That's a huge honor. Thank you so much. <laughs> Allie brought me into M&B. I went to the general interest meeting and was very intimidated, and then Allie was very nice. And then she was never nice again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she puts a really good face on the first time you meet her. After that, you're on your own. So, I believe I'm the only one here who had seen The American President prior to watching for this episode, yes? Correct. Yeah, I had not seen it. And it's a weird artifact because it comes fairly early in Sorkin's career. It's the third movie he wrote after the film adaptation of A Few Good Men, which was also directed by Rob Reiner and which was nominated for Best Picture. And then the movie Malice, which is kind of a medical drama. It's most famous for the scene in which Alec Baldwin is in a deposition and declares, I am God. I have an MD from Harvard. I am board certified in cardiothoracic medicine and trauma surgery. I have been awarded citations from seven different medical boards in New England, and I am never, ever sick at sea. So I ask you, when someone goes into that chapel and they fall on their knees and they pray to God that their wife doesn't miscarry, or that their daughter doesn't bleed to death, or that their mother doesn't suffer acute neural trauma from post-operative shock, Who do you think they're praying to? Now, you go ahead and read your Bible, Dennis, and you go to your church, and with any luck you might win the annual raffle, but if you're looking for God, he was in operating room number two on November 17th, and he doesn't like to be second-guessed. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. So this comes in the 90s. He had the big hit with A Few Good Men and is now under contract with Castle Rock, working with them to develop ideas, doing some script polishing, things like that. And as I said, this script comes out of the Robert Redford pitch, The President Elopes. I'm glad they didn't go with that title, not only because he doesn't elope in this movie, but also because it's trash. 
there is something like magically like 1940s about that title especially if you put an exclamation point at the end now you're talking (laughs) that movie probably came out in 1938 that film was lost during the fox warehouse fire in the 1950s but it was definitely made so when did you first watch this movie? So How I probably saw this you? movie about 10 years ago. My sister got the DVD, I think, and we watched it, kind of dug it at the time. I had not yet seen The West Wing when I watched it, and I haven't watched it since. So it's interesting to go back and see the extent to which it is Extremely proto- your shit. It is extremely <laughs> made for me, um, but... Particularly the way that it is a proto version of season one, especially of the West Wing, which is something that Sorkin was very much aware of when he made the West Wing, because the idea for that show in part came when he had a meeting with John Wells, the TV producer who at the time was overseeing ER, one of the biggest shows on television, and Sorkin had not properly prepared for that meeting, and so in the meeting, he started pitching unused ideas from this screenplay. Oh my god. Which was originally about 200 pages longer than the final version. So he had a lot of stuff about the staffers that got cut. And they went from there and built it into what became the West Wing. But like way better as the West Wing. Sure. I mean, it's easier to flesh a lot of things out when you're doing, even if you just look at the Sorkin stuff, 22 episodes a year for four years versus, what, 115 minutes? Right, yeah. I think that it was good of the West Wing. One pro it had is it was able to just focus in on the politics. And, like, there is, you know, real life, not real life stuff, but personal life stuff happening between the president and his wife and all that kind of stuff. But this movie, you're right, doesn't really decide if it's a romantic movie or a political movie. And that does cause some, you're not getting enough of either. Whereas with the West Wing, by kind of fully committing to one, I think that's why it has a chance to shine as brightly as it does. I think if they had gone more in on the romance in this movie, it would have been a different movie, but I think it would have been very fun. And I do think that this goes more absurd in terms of its romance than even the West Wing in its soapiest moments did, but that's also the kind of movie that they're making. I think the fact that it starts out as the president elopes does influence the type of screenplay that this becomes. But you also see things where, like, there are a bunch of actors in this movie who go on to be in the West Wing. We've got folks like Joshua Molina, Martin Sheen, and then there are also just straight-up lines that reappear in the West Wing, like someone needing to explain the virtue of a proportional response, which is later used in, I think, episode three of the West Wing. I haven't watched the West Wing in a long time, but I read that the think tank that Annette Benning is hired by also shows up in the West Wing sometimes. Well, Sorkin reuses names all the time. Have any of you ever seen the YouTube compilation Sorkinisms, which is just a supercut of the same phrases being used over and over in different Aaron Sorkin things? That sounds hilarious. It's pretty incredible. And it's one of the things where once you see them, you can never stop seeing them. I was upset that the people for ethical mapping did not make an appearance in the Cartographers for social equality? That Yep, that group of people should have shown up in this movie. I'm sure if we looked at the official scene listing, the final scene would be called What Kind of Day Has It Been? Which is the title of the season finale of season one of every Aaron Sorkin show. Also, Anna DeVere Smith was in this. That's right. She was the national security advisor. I remember she came to Georgetown to talk to the culture or diplomacy and performance class or something. 
The first thing she said was, I'm not taking any questions about the West Wing. That was a smart clarification. But then went on to talk about the West Wing. So I'm like, do you not want to talk about it? I think she wanted to talk about it as much as she wanted and then not answer a bunch of dumb questions. I think that people should start their presentations with, I will be taking no questions. Questions are mostly bad. Question and answer sections are almost always the worst. So speaking of Sorkin's TV projects... He also developed the idea for my favorite of them, Sports Night, while working on the screenplay for this, because he shut himself in a hotel room and kept Sports Center on while he was writing the screenplay, and from that got the idea of, what about the people making Sports Center? Which became Sports Night, which rules. He also, of course, because this is Aaron Sorkin in the 90s, wrote this movie under the heavy influence of cocaine. That explains a lot. Explains a lot about everything he does. Yeah, I mean, up until, like, what, 2002? That's pretty much every project he worked on. Which explains things like how he was able to write every episode of two different television series in the same year. I'm glad he seems to be doing better. That sounds like problem levels of cocaine. I mean, that's the reason he left the West Wing. So, hopefully he's doing well. Seems like, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is doing alright for him. He was on 30 Rock that one time. Sure, in the parody of himself. Right, that was funny. Is it parody or do you think that's just how he talks? I don't think he walk and talks. He feels like a sinner. When he was on that much cocaine, he probably did. Well, sure. So we're going to get deep in this, but what are your sort of initial reactions to the American president? Like I said, I'm aware that as ridiculous as it is sometimes, this is completely made for me. I have a lot of love for Aaron Sorkin in general. And we know I'm a sucker for a good movie romance, so this plays very well for me. But what about what about you, Mark? I found myself much more interested in the movie every time Annette Benning was on screen. I thought she was really fun in this movie, and I think I was more interested in the romance than the politics stuff. And I don't think that was just because I was watching it for the show where I needed to focus more on the romance than the politics stuff. I thought Annette Benning and Michael... Douglas. Uh, I almost said Michael Sheen, who is not a person. Yeah, he is. I love Michael Sheen. <laughs> oh, that He's is the him. star of The Deal, the movie I cited at the start of the oh episode. Oh my god. I didn't think of him as a combination of Michael Douglas and Martin Sheen, but maybe. I do think that Michael Douglas and Annette Benning were fun together, and it was just kind of entertaining to watch them have their fun, flirty moments. They're both good Sorkin leads. Not everyone can pull off that dialogue, and I think they both did it well. Yeah, I agree. So I was definitely more interested in that. And then, you know, he gives his big rousing speech at the end about how I'm going to fix politics by being good. And you're just watching it. You're like, good for you. Yeah. So we need to talk about that speech because I don't know that we'll get to it. I guess we will because it's also the resolution in part of the relationship. But in 2013, I don't know if either of you know this. In the wake of the Sandy Hook shootings, like several months later after Mansion Toomey had failed and like there were no meaningful national changes to gun laws, everyone's favorite New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd wrote a piece explaining why Obama had been unable to change the country's gun laws. And one of the things that she prescribed was she said Obama was spending too much time giving speeches appealing to people's emotions. And, quote, the White House should have created a war room full of charts with the names of politicians they had to capture, like they had in the American president. Soaring speeches have earned their place, but this was about blocking and tackling. Which is weird, because in the movie, the big board doesn't work, and Andrew Shepard has to resort to a soaring speech. Which also probably failed. Right. 
Barack Obama replied in his White House Correspondents' Dinner speech because Michael Douglas was there. Of course, everybody's got plenty of advice. Maureen Dowd said, I could solve all my problems if I were just more like Michael Douglas in the American president. <laughs> and I know Michael's here tonight. Uh, Michael, what's your secret, man? Could it be that you were an actor in an Aaron Sorkin liberal fantasy? Might that have something to do with it? I don't know. Check in with me. Maybe, maybe that it's something else. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, I miss him. Those are the good days. So, Allie, what's your sort of takeaway after the American president? Maybe I was focusing on this, like, from a too-real-life perspective. I thought this was preposterous. Well, of course it's preposterous. Everything about it. Like, from start to finish, the president is making all these crazy decisions based on a woman he barely knows. And I'm like, Andrew, we need to have a serious talk about how seriously you're taking your job. So, I don't know, maybe I'm humorless in that sense. I found it absolutely ridiculous. I also, just from a legal standpoint... First of all, he's telling his daughter the Constitution is a page-turner. I went to law school. I chose to do that. Constitution, not a page-turner. Sorry, everybody. I mean, obviously the movie is nonsense. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, the crime bill. Since when is a crime bill entirely about guns? I well, it's know. not. That's the right. point. It starts out not really being about guns too much. There's, like, a handgun ban included in it. And then they're like, well, if we want to roll guns into it, we've got to get assault weapons and all the other stuff, too. I think the only realistic part of this movie is that a Republican opponent to a Democratic incumbent would call a woman he is sleeping with a political whore, which he doesn't use those words, but he basically does. I think it is worth placing this movie in the time in which it came out, and this is very much a Clinton-era movie. Reiner and Sorkin and other members of the crew got to shadow in the Clinton White House multiple times, and... In the 90s, we see a major criminal justice bill. We see the assault weapons ban happening at the same time. So they're dealing with issues that are coming up at that period. There's a big flag burning debate in the 1990s. So these are all contemporary issues they're engaging with. There's also a lot of accusations that these staffer characters are based on Clinton staffers. That like Martin Sheen is basically Mac McLarty and Michael J. Fox is basically playing George Stephanopoulos. And like, they're... Fairly reasonable comparisons. It is crazy that the president would let her sleep overnight. Like, it's absolutely idiotic. In 1995, like, nowadays, let alone in 1995, for an unmarried man to let an unmarried woman spend the night at the White House. Sure, although it is a weird thing where, like, we don't really have precedent. We don't, but based off of the other political scandals, like... Most of them are about affairs. And granted, many of the ones that were most significant in our current mindset had not yet happened. That is true. I just mean the idea, like, people in movies always, you know, look down upon people with their premarital relations. And by having the president openly have premarital sex is an interesting choice on his part. But I mean, that's kind of the point, is that he's saying... They shouldn't look down on people for stuff like this. My private life isn't anybody's business. Which is a foolish opinion for him to hold, but you can kind of understand it. He's reacting to that attitude that you're talking about. Right. And he's dumb and will lose 
the election. The weirder part for me was when his chief AJ was like, oh, well, if you, like, want to be with a woman, like, we can make arrangements. Yeah. I'm like, how is it better to be with a hooker than with, like, a woman you're dating? What's like, hilarious is that then season one of The West Wing has a major storyline about, like, you can't even have, like, non-transactional sex with a prostitute because even that is too much. Correct. And I'm like, how do you... I don't... I, I thought that was crazy. I guess his idea was that... This woman is a political figure. She is known in the political realms. If you found someone who you could sneak in a trunk and who wouldn't object to that and would never be seen by cameras or recognized, then maybe that could happen. Someone you sneak in on a White House tour, go about it more circumspect rather than bringing in a political operative to a state dinner. This is also like the last time that you could make this movie and not have the internet be a major part of the storyline. Because... A couple years later, we get Lewinsky, which means Drudge becomes a big deal, and the internet becomes a major part of political coverage. Right. Like, in that smoky back room where the Spider-Man villain, who was the Republican nominee for president, was, like, taking hard copies of newspapers and, like, cackling evilly. I'm like, there are a lot of newspapers in the 90s. This is Richard Dreyfuss playing Senator Robert Rumson from Kansas. Yeah, Spider-Man villain. I mean, he is kind of, like, a, like... 70s Spider-Man villain. Also, what was his slogan? Bring back the pride? Was that? I wrote it down. It was crazy. The pride is back. What kind of political slogan is that? Like, well, we haven't been proud of our country, and now we're going to. It feels very much like the particular type of grievance politics that permeated the Republican Party in the 90s. Like, we're going to restore honor and dignity to the White House. Right, I just think they could have written it better. According to a Pew article in December 1996, only about 20% of Americans were on the internet, and only about 11% used it for any sort of news. Right, so that's the thing. This we is... think of, this thing will definitely come out, everyone will know about it, but unless it makes it into a newspaper, unless it makes it onto, like, the NBC Evening News, people are not going to know about it. We forget the extent to which things could just be hidden. That's wild. You're right, but it's, that's just crazy to me. So this movie was pretty well received. It made $60 million in its release in 1995. That's about $124 million adjusted, which is a very impressive showing. It opened at number third on November 17th, 1995. That was the Friday before Thanksgiving. On Thanksgiving, a little film called Toy Story opened and dominated the box office for the rest of the year. I love Toy Story. It's so good. Toy Story 4 was so good, too. It was good. Um, this movie also got one Oscar nomination for comedy slash musical score, because if you'll remember, in the 90s, there were two different score categories of the Oscars, one for drama, one for comedy musical. I don't remember that, because I wasn't watching the Oscars at one years old. Well, you're just not enough of an Oscars nerd. But that was a nomination for Mark Shaman, who I think is a good fit for writing music to a Sorkin project. Like, this has the sort of over-emotional music that his work demands, unless you're David Fincher making The Social Network. It wound up losing to Disney's Pocahontas. Mm, that will happen. As With some good music. Hard to argue there. Yeah. And I was surprised to discover this. This movie is number 75 on AFI's list of the top 100 movie romances. I saw that. AFI, let's talk. I didn't look at the rest of the list, but... Really? It's probably not in the top 100 for me, but I do like this movie. I like it, but the top 100 romances, there are a lot of really good Hollywood romances. Right, and of course, if we hadn't lost the president elopes exclamation point in the Fox Fire, then that would probably be on the list. 
I will take this moment to point out Michael Douglas is a former board member of my old company, the Nuclear Threat Initiative. So not only does he play a good president, but he cares about the most pressing threats of our time. Do you guys know each other? I saw him once from across a room. So basically we're best friends. Will, this beat Jerry Maguire, which is only 100. That is ludicrous. That is frankly offensive. We'll talk more about Jerry Maguire in the fall, but holy cow, that's ridiculous. Uh, Grease also beat Jerry Maguire, as well as Working Girl. Wow, uh, Jerry Maguire is better than Grease by a country mile. Anyway, we have talked a lot about the stuff surrounding this movie, but I think it's time for us to really dig in and take a look at this romance. Of course, every week on We Love the Love, we just focus in on the romance of the movie we're talking about. We break it down into five points that allow us to get to the core of what makes its romance work or as it may be, not work. So, Allie, as our guest, you're going to be in charge of guiding us through these points. So, I'm going to hand things over to you and take it away. Tell us about the American president. Oh, boy. So, I guess point one. Sydney, this bill is important to me. Yes, sir. I'll convey your message. But you don't believe me. The GDC is asking for 20%, sir. It's not going to pass at 20%. It's a long shot at 10 I feel like it actually starts before he even meets her. It's when his press secretary says that, like, offhanded comment about how he's a widower. And it's like, in that moment, he decides he's going to date someone, which I feel like if you were a widower, you had a daughter, like, that would be a bigger decision. I mean, did people wonder if he had been thinking about it beforehand and that just, like, set him off? Or, like, my read on it was he just decided, oh, this weird comment happened, now I'm going to go date and, like, maybe the first woman I see. <laughs> like There's that, like, weird moment where Anna DeBeer Smith makes a, like, throwaway comment about, like, oh, yeah, the widower president. It was pretty uncomfortable to watch. But you can also see that it just comes from the fact that this is how everyone talks when he's not around. Yes. So then we get Annette Benning playing Sidney Ellen Wade, who is a political operative. She's worked on campaigns, and she's been hired by this environmental lobby to help them push the White House to deal with the most urgent issue of the day, which is the global climate crisis. And they're trying to negotiate whether the bill to solve the global climate crisis should call for a 10 or 20% fossil fuel reduction, either of which today is laughable. This is the most bummer thing about Sorkin movies, is they're dealing with all the same problems we're currently dealing with just like 20 years ago, and it makes them feel more intractable. There's a moment where Joshua Molina, who also works for this environmental lobby, is trying to convince a congressman to support the 20% reduction. And he's like, 10 years from now, every car with an internal combustion engine is going to be a classic. And I'm like, 10 years from 1995, every car is going to be a Hummer. When I read the description of this movie and how the president fell in love with a lobbyist, I thought the main drama would be the fact that she was like a lobbyist and that that means she would be an evil character. Because of our current political climate, the idea of a good lobbyist just didn't cross my mind. We didn't start hardcore demonizing lobbyists until the whole Scooter Libby thing. I like Jack Abramoff, that era. Right. So when she came on and she was like lobbying for the climate think tank and trying to reduce climate change i was just like oh so you're also a good person <laughs> that's a turn i wasn't expecting so annette benning's been hired they're gonna fix the climate crisis alone by themselves with no other country okay i mean they're not saying this is gonna solve it they're saying we are facing a calamity and this is the first step of what we can do and the white house is taking a lot of flack for not doing enough and their issue is that they can't get enough members of congress on board 
for this 20%. So the White House wants to drop it to 10% because they say they lose 34 votes by going up to 20%, which is a huge number of votes in the U.S. House of Representatives. Like, that is not a small margin. But also a reasonable guess on 10 to 20, like a change of 20% to 10%. That is a big change and would change a lot of votes. Oh, absolutely. But I'm saying, like, this would be a steep thing to try to fix. So Annette Benning and her co-workers are going to be meeting at the White House to try to convince them to do the 20% thing. And they're just ripping it into the administration for not pushing hard enough on this. Right. And I loved that moment because it reminds me of me after a couple of drinks, except she was a lot more eloquent and targeted in her criticism. But of course, just as she crescendos to the like big moment of the big point she's making. And she's been going on like, it's time for the president to run for president, be aggressive, push for what he wants. Right. So she's like at that big crescendo and in walks the president at AJ's request because he had said earlier like can you come to this meeting to convince them AJ is his chief of staff played by Martin Sheen right which is weird because I'm like no you're the president what are you why are you not the president he walks in and she finishes her speech and she's feeling good and then he interrupts and she is mortified but he's like cracking jokes it's very similar to when the president arrives in the pilot of the West Wing just as people have been arguing, and he gets to, like, be magnanimous and joke around. I was particularly moved by Sidney Allen Wade's reference to the president thinking he must be chief executive of Fantasyland, which is a job that I would like, because I assume I would no longer have to wait in lines for Peter Pan's flight. Those lines are too long. That's true. The CEO gets to skip the line. That's just the rule. Yeah. I would be very mad if the CEO tried to cut in front of me. It's like, you can be here all the time. You can wait in line. I don't know how much influence the chief executive of Fantasyland would have over Frontierland, but I would also dedicate a lot of my time to keeping the country bear jamboree open. (laughs) It's a thing we need. For morale, if nothing else. For the world! (laughs) We should watch the country bears. I feel like we should not. I listened to the How Did This Get Made episode and was reminded that Queen Latifah plays a character and also herself in that movie. That movie is bewildering to me. The more I learn about it, the more I want to stay very far away from it. Have you never seen it? No. Oh my god. I feel like we should watch it. But anyway, so President Andrew Shepard, or Michael Douglas, meets Annette Benning, and he's like, look, you want to talk to me? Like, why don't you meet me? Like, like in we- the rec room or something. He asks someone to take her to the rec room, somewhere less intimidating, which is apparently code for take this person to the Oval Office, which is, like, kind of funny. Yeah. I cannot imagine seeing someone as embarrassed as she was and then being like, I'm gonna screw more with her. (laughs) Like, but maybe you can? I mean, I could see the president wanting to have some fun with a person who clearly knows what they're talking about. I think one of the virtues of the romance in here, which, as we've said, is nonsense, is that from the drop, we never question that Sidney Allen Wade is very competent, very good at her job, fully on top of everything she needs to know. Right. Even if her boss, I mean, this killed me. This is maybe like jumping ahead to point three or something. But when her boss was like, uh, I'm in charge of your dating life, actually. I hired you and like, you can't date the president. I, that was driving me crazy. I'm like, no, this woman's gonna save your butt. So if you could just let her do her work, please. Thank you. They have their like little meeting in the Oval Office. They're sparring back and forth. And the president ultimately makes a deal where he says, look, if you can find 34 members of Congress who will vote for a 20% reduction, then fine, we'll have the votes and we'll do that 20% reduction. And if you can find 24 of them, we'll find the other 10. So he like makes this deal where he's like, we're not going to help you on this, but if you make it happen, like, fine, we'll throw you a bone. Correct. 
which is kind of like a pretty smart compromise in one way, but also commits the White House to this thing that they don't really want to do. So did you think he thought she'd be able to do it? No, I think that's the only reason he makes that deal. Right, okay. It's a lot of votes. It's a lot of, yeah, exactly. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, he's only doing this to like flirt with her because he doesn't think she'll be able to do it. See, I don't think of it as flirting in that moment so much as like appeasing a constituency. And he even says to AJ after, he's basically just like, hey, we have a pretty decent chance of getting 10. If they get 24, great, we got 34 and we can do it. And if they don't, then we still get to say to them, oh, well, we tried, we made this deal, and if you fail, we still have a good working relationship. And you get the 10% reduction. Right. Like, we're told repeatedly that the environmental lobby is a big supporter of his administration, so, like, this is a fairly good strategy. Fair enough. It's one of the few political strategies in this movie that seem to make sense. Um, I'm sorry, what about the board? Did you not listen to Maureen Dowd? <laughs> there was a board. That was done by the think tank, though, and not the administration. No, the White House had a board, too, because okay. Michael J. Fox was talking about it at one point. Oh, right. Michael J. Fox is also in this movie. Uh, Michael J. Fox as Lewis Rothschild, which is how he's credited. A credit that I love because, like... I get it when I see at the end of a movie, like, and Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. I'm like, sure, like, Nick Fury, comic book character for 50 years, now a fairly iconic film one. But it's like, Michael J. Fox as Lewis Rothschild. Michael J. Fox as who? (laughs) Right, I thought, I'm like, am I supposed to know who that is? Or I thought he'd be, like, a more important character than, like, sort of Josh Lyman light. But, like, no, he was just, like, the speechwriter. We're told he's the domestic policy advisor. right, right, yeah. Getting the and credit made me realize that he actually would not be a big part of this movie. And as is my favorite credit. Right. If he had been a bigger part, he probably could have gotten to... Like, third build. Probably third third build. After Michael Douglas and Annette Benning. But the fact that he was credited as an and blank as, I was just like, oh, so he's not in this much. So anyway, that night, Michael Douglas and Martin Sheen are playing pool. As one does. Indeed. And they're talking about their lives, and Michael Douglas is like, yo, you talk to uh, that lobbyist? And Martin Sheen's like, sure. And Michael Douglas is like, well, did she say anything about me? So high school. It's very high school. I mean, so high school. Martin Sheen calls him out. He's like, no, but I can pass her a note after class if you like. This is when Martin Sheen offers to get him a prostitute. Right, which I was not on board with. It was wild! It was crazy. He actually tells the president that you shouldn't date. You're at 63% approval, which is crazy now, but was the kind of thing that did happen. But he's like, you'll drop maybe like five points if we introduce a wild card like you dating into the mix. Turns out it's like 20 points. Which was weird to me. Which is also a lot. They drop, like, eight when it's just, like, what the heck is going on here? And people get questioning. It doesn't drop a lot until he's dating a flag burner. And the opposition is going increasingly hard on it. Right. So I guess that makes sense. But it's still just like, okay, cool. Cool, guys. So he's basically asking his chief of staff for permission to date. He's asking his chief of staff and his best friend, like, is this a good idea? And his chief of staff says, no. And he's like, well, I'm doing it anyway. Which is like, then why did you bother asking you're the president i mean do what you want i mean he got input that's still valuable even if he's not going to listen to it i mean true and so then is this is when he calls her at home or at her sister's house yeah he calls her at his sister's house right but like creepily has that number as hers the u.s government and surveillance whole other situation we could get into but not as part of this. but that's like a thing where like whenever the president wants to get in touch with someone they're just like able to have that number right it's only weird because he's asking her to be his date to a state dinner right right it's not like he's calling her to be like good job selling girl scout cookies or whatever it's he's like 
flirting with her and like i this whole state dinner thing that's a whole separate issue yeah so are we around point two like what's going on here what are we doing so i guess point two is sort of this conversation he has with aj into this phone call where he decides like i should ask this woman to the state dinner did she say anything about me miss Wade? when she called did she say anything about you well no it's just that we had a nice couple of minutes together she threatened me i patronized her we didn't have anything to eat but uh, i thought there was a connection i think point three is more the state dinner because i feel like a lot happens between those 200 pairs of eyes are focused on you right now with two questions who's this girl and why is the president dancing with her well first of all the 200 pairs of eyes are not focused on me they're focused on you and the answers are sydney ellen wade and because she said yes okay so the newly elected president of france Oh my gosh. Is coming for a state dinner. It's the first one this White House has had in a while because the last one they did, people got food poisoning. Oh, I missed that. There's like a throwaway reference to it. Wow. Huh. Oh, it was Japan, Japan. right? So they hadn't done one in a while, but they figured out oh, a new French president might as well do this. And the president needs a date. And his cousin, I think, is also sick. Like right, whoever was right. supposed to be his date. So he calls up Sidney Ellen Wade and asks her to do it. Which, this is where, again, like the president is interested in dating this person like you could swing this some way like have her over like to the residence or something like that but instead it's like what's the most public event on the washington social calendar for the next six months let's do that i know i was asking myself during this I'm like would you do it like if single obama invited me to like the state dinner with the president of france because like on the one hand like that sounds cool heck yeah on the other hand, I'm like, I don't know if I want those kinds of tweets. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Well, this is pre-Twitter. But there were still op-eds. Like, there was still, like, weird coverage of it. I think part of it would depend on what I'm doing. Like, the fact that she's in politics makes it weird. But if I'm just serving coffee, people would be like, who is this person? The hot barista. Ooh, yeah, you could be a meme. <laughs> Stay dinner memes. And then even then, sort of like what you were saying, so he commits to the full-on, like, public introduction at the state dinner. He goes all in. But he doesn't just sit there with her and eat dinner. She's like, oh, speaking in French to the French president because she's that amazing. Because the French president is bored. So she's, like, talking to him in French, and he's, like, making jokes back about, like, Louis the Sixteenth. A joke I didn't really get, like, if... People dance like they go to the guillotine. Like, it was a weird joke. It was a weird it joke. It was a weird joke. But then the president... What can you say? It's the French. Yeah, true. <laughs> true. So then the president's like, oh, you were asking about dancing? Let's be the only two people to dance at this. I thought it was so weird no one joined them. Like, you would think the president and his wife from France would at least get up and dance. I know this clip very well because at the... National Museum of American History, in their presidency exhibit, there is a section on the presidency in film, and they have a clip package of lots of different clips from depictions of the presidency, and the two of them dancing is in that package. So I've seen the conversation where they're talking about, like, everyone's looking at you many times. Yeah, it was like, I don't know, why didn't any? You would think just other people would get up and dance, but no. Maybe they do. I mean, we just see them start to dance, and then we cut away from it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they do later. You would give the president a few minutes yeah. alone oh, every, out definitely. of respect. Definitely. And so then what he's doing after the state dinner date, the date dinner, if you will. Yes. That's different from a dinner date. It's no, a date dinner. It's a date dinner. State plus date. Exactly. You're done. Nope. I will never leave. <laughs> and so he's like, oh, you got to send flowers. That's what guys do after a date. I'm like, since when? I mean, that's what Anna DeVere Smith says. 
She's like, no man has ever done that. Right. And he's trying to get flowers that'll be relevant. He wants dogwoods because she's from Virginia. And he cannot figure out how to order flowers because all of his credit cards are in, in Wisconsin. Where he's from. So ultimately he resorts to just sending her a Virginia ham at work. This whole like latching on to the one line at the beginning where she's like, I'm Sydney Ellen Wade, I'm from Virginia. That seemed like a very Sorkin-y detail to sort of carry through. To commit to weird jokes over and over again. We do get a nice phone conversation of the president trying to order flowers over the phone, very reminiscent of the West Wing Butterball Hotline. Yes, that's exactly what that was. So he orders the ham, sends it to her work, just as she's explaining to her co-workers, like, it was one thing, like, we're not dating. Right, and then, like, if a man sends you a ham, like, that's the universal sign that, of course, you're dating. That's how you do it. That's how you show that you are courting somebody. Right, like, I got a ham from Rob, like... Ham just means DTF. Yeah, I mean, we're gonna talk next week about Kate and Leopold, a movie in which Hugh Jackman says, like, if you're interested in courting someone, you have to send them your intentions in writing. Today, you send them a ham. It's true. So I guess, I don't know, I feel like I've mixed up the numbers in the middle here. So I guess that was two. So three is this sort of, like, obsession part. Yeah, where he is very much pursuing he her. He is so into it. I'm like, dude, you have, like, the PDD. Like, you gotta go. <laughs> she's, like, not opposed to it. Like, right. she's excited about it, too. But it's very much the president pursuing her. He invites her over to dinner at the residence with his daughter, who is a bad trombone player who doesn't like reading the Constitution. But she seemed cool. Like, yeah. I'd hang out with her. I have to say, watching this post-Monica Lewinsky takes, like, a very different turn on it, right? Right. So I'm sitting there cringing at all this, where I'm sure, like, people who saw it in 1995 are like, oh, that's so sweet. There's also a difference where, like, Annette Bening does not work for the president. That's true. Right. Which is the biggest issue. So when she does go over there to, like, have sex with him, he's like, why don't you work for me? And it's like, because then you can't date. Mr. President. Well, that's why she doesn't work for him now. But, like, why not originally? You're clearly liberal like he is and care about some of the stuff and are really smart and competent. And he's like, why don't you work in the White House with my team? And she's like, you can't afford me, which is the best. It's, again, a testament to her extreme level of competence. Like, she's at the top level when she takes her job with the environmental lobby. It's framed as, like, this job will get you the connections to start running national campaigns, Mm -hmm. which is what you want to do. So, like, she's right on the cusp there. So she goes over... For dinner, they almost make out in the China room. And, like, was she crying? Like, there were tears in her eyes. She's overwhelmed by the White House. Yeah? This movie is so earnest. Okay. You have to remember, this is an Aaron Sorkin project before he left the West Wing. I'm bringing a huge level of cynicism to something that probably does not deserve it. (laughs) It's incredibly earnest. Yeah. They have, like, a full White House set. They built East and West Wing replicas. Wow. It's funny with, like, presidency stuff because, like, Air Force Ones and White Houses are the kinds of things that movies need regularly enough that you don't want to build a new one every time. So, like, this White House got reused for things like Nixon and Independence Day. So it got blown up by aliens. (laughs) And, like, there's, like, three guys who own replica Air Force Ones and just rent them out to every movie that uses an Air Force One. Oh, my God. What a great business model. Yeah. I would love to get into the Air Force One business. Wait, that's what I should do because the new Air Force One is coming out. I should get in early, buy a jet, and start renting it to studios. I don't see what could go wrong. Yes. So if you want to get in on this with me, I need investors. So uh, just tweet at me how much money you can contribute. Hashtag jet me in to show that you are in on the jet get rich quick scheme. And it's not going to be that quick, but it will be lucrative over the long term. (laughs) How much do you think you have to put up front to get a 747? I mean, I'm assuming 
like I've watched car commercials. So I assume I can get uh like zero down and I don't know what APR means, but that's probably gonna be a thing. I don't know either. <laughs> How many uh JD Power Awards do you think that <laughs> Boeing has? Probably fewer now with the Max 8 situation. Do you think they'd sell me one of those? See, I don't need it to actually take off. I'm like, you could probably get a bargain on a Max 8. Because it doesn't have to fly. It does not have to fly. Unless, I don't know, but here's the thing. For your own personal enjoyment. No, because then I have to pay for jet fuel. But, like, to fly on Air Force One, like, one time, like, maybe it would be worth it. Do you really think you could get, like, the 737 back to look like Air Force One? I mean, there's only one way to find out, and that's to tweet me how much money you'll contribute. Hashtag jet me in. So anyway, they almost make out in the China room, but the president gets interrupted because the Libyans attack a U.S., like, defense station in Israel. And this, of course, is not the first time that Michael J. Fox has had to deal with an encounter with the Libyans, because that, of course, happened in... Back to the Future, subject of a future two-hour episode of this podcast. It's also not the first time we've dealt with a surprise Libyan attack on this podcast. Broadcast News. Oh, that's right! We have not yet talked about Broadcast News. Never mind. That's a weird thing now that so much has happened with Libya since this movie. When he's like, we're gonna bomb Libyan Intelligence HQ. I'm like, you don't want to like name the agency, like a little more specific. I'm a process nerd, so maybe I was the only one that had an issue with that. That's not really what this movie is about. No, it really wasn't, but it was a small detail. With they immediately stopped talking about it because what? the Libyan attack exists exclusively to break up their date. Correct. It really goes nowhere. Right. The Libyans attacked Americans. And were made very clear that it was specifically to target Americans. Like, they knew about that station and waited until Americans had showed up to attack it. Right. And then that's just the excuse to get them to not kiss, when you could also just do something like, I don't know, a tour wants to come say hi. It's like midnight. (laughs) There are no tours. Yeah, I just mean, like, they could go at a much lower level. He is the president. I mean, that, I think, is reflective of the way that this movie keeps dividing its priorities. Well, dividing its priorities and then setting up the sort of central tension in their relationship, which is that he is the president and she is not. Right. So he winds up inviting her back another time. And this is when they bone, right? Yeah. But first she's like, oh, I kind of think we should break up. And then he's like, no, let me explain to you like why we should not break up in a way that I found kind of patronizing, but also kind of like, I feel like he was nervous and talking a lot. I think that's what it was. It's a very Sorkin speech. Very Sorkin. The way that he frames it seems like you're a woman and I'm going to tell you how this works. But that all of his supporting evidence is basically, I like you, please make out with me. Right. And then she's like, okay. Well, and then she's like, can I go to the bathroom? And she comes back just wearing his shirt. And then whiskey and sex. Indeed. So that happens. I guess that's the end of point three. You could append the like sneaking her out in the morning. That was like a priority of the entire senior staff all at once. I feel like if you have to be willing to show up in the president's bedroom at, like, five in the morning to sneak a woman out of it, like, I don't know if that's the job for me. Maybe it is. I don't know. Gotta take care of everything. That's true. Handle it. So, after all this, the movie starts to shift its focus somewhat more to the politics of it all. It's important legislation that, for the first time, has a legitimate chance. She deserves every opportunity She? You meant hit, didn't you, sir? You meant the important legislation deserves every opportunity. Louis, shut up. Because Sidney Ellen Wade has been very successful, and with the help of her assistant Joshua Molina, has managed to get the votes that they need. What was his job? He works at 
this lobby. Just like a guy yeah. who works there? Okay. A friend of Aaron Sorkin's. <laughs> That's his job. He was in the stage version of A Few Good Men. Oh. So this is really getting underway. But in the meantime, the White House is trying to focus on getting their crime bill through. And they realize at the Christmas party, based on a throwaway comment that Sydney makes, that they can pick off some votes from the environmental bill by agreeing to put it in a drawer and get the crime bill passed. And so they decide to do that, which screws Sydney. Right, but is maybe the right thing to do for the president. Right, and that's where this tension comes right, in. Right, exactly. Which I think is more interesting tension that they are professionals at odds than if it was just, like, the president dating a rando. Right, true. So anyway, she gets really mad at him where she's like, you screwed me. And you lost my vote. Which is crazy, because what's she gonna do? Vote for Rumson? Yeah, exactly. The I guy mean, who called her a whore her. on yeah. national television? Yeah, that was probably, I mean, I think this is point four. Okay. The, like, nader of there. So they, like, break up, because she's like, I can't believe you did this to me. She gets fired over it, which I think is extreme. Which was, I mean, that guy was not into it from the, he was initially very into having her working there, because obviously she's very good at her job, but as soon as she started, like, living her life as she pleased, he was not into it, and that's when I stopped being into him, frankly. Yeah, this is her boss, played by John Mahoney. Wasn't that Fraser's dad? It is Fraser's dad. He's also the dad in Say Anything, dot, dot, dot. Oh, yeah, he is. He was a criminal in that movie. I mostly think of him as Frazier's dad. So, he's a bad boss. He fires her. So she doesn't have a job. She doesn't have a boyfriend. She doesn't know who she's going to vote for for president because her choices are her ex-boyfriend and Robert Rumson. <laughs> who called her a whore. She probably has a pretty good claim against the boss that she was fired for being part of a protected class, but that's a separate podcast. That's the sequel. That's the sequel. Suing... Frazier's dad. That's what it's called. Suing <laughs> Frazier's dad. Exclamation point. We need more punctuation in movie titles, but also not stupid punctuation. Basically, I want more exclamation it's points. Point. It's the best punctuation. What is one of the best movie titles that would be improved with an exclamation point? Operation Dumbo Drop. I'm a big fan of Roman Holiday. <laughs> Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. No, now this is all I can think about. Like... Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones! <laughs> oh no! The clones are attacking! More movies should have exclamation points. I agree. That's I agree. why Oklahoma is one of the best titles of a musical. So anyway, Hamilton. they're broken up. Which I believe takes us to point number five. Point number five. I've loved two women in my life. I lost one to cancer. And I lost the other because I was so busy keeping my job, I forgot to do my job. Which is the big soaring Sorkin speech, which at the end of the day, I am always a sucker for, especially in these trying times in which we live. So as the campaign is getting underway, Shepard is going to be running for re-election. Robert Rumson is the presumptive nominee of the Republicans. Increasingly, Republicans have been tarring Sydney as a way of getting at the president. They found a photo of her at a protest where someone was burning a flag. And they're using this to attack the president. They're really excited that they can, like, make character attacks on the president because they're like, look, last time he was just, like, a widower raising a kid on his own. Like, you can't be like, he's a bad dude. But now we can be like, he's a bad dude. Because that's our strategy. We're great people. Yeah, you want to tell people what they should be afraid of and then tell them who's to blame for it. Right. Which a I'm... line from this speech, which was later plagiarized by an Australian politician. Oh, my God. I wrote that down. I'm like, hmm, this sounds upsettingly that's, close to home. That's the most classic Australian politician move. I love every time Australian politicians 
say something ridiculous like that. Like, there was the Australian politician who ran for re-election with the slogan, Continuity with Change, which is the joke slogan from Veep. I don't think there's been a single Prime Minister of Australia that's finished out a term since the 90s. It's been a while. There was that dude who was running recently who was also the guy behind the Titanic 2. Oh, I didn't hear about this. Yeah, we talked on our Titanic episode about the Titanic 2, the people who are trying to build an exact replica of it. Why? Because it's a luxurious way to travel around the world. Now, and it's worth noting. Die. Presumably, they've solved that problem. <laughs> it's also worth noting, Titanic got its name from being very large. Modern cruise ships are much larger than the Titanic, so it will, in fact, be a very small cruise ship. Mini-tanic. What's funny is this dude is involved in Australian politics, but during his promotional stuff for the Titanic 2, he talks a lot about, like, how great the ship is, but also, like, honoring the legacy of Rose and Jack, who are not real people. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, anyway, Shepard gives this big speech about, like, here are the things we're going to do. We're throwing out the old crime bill because we're going to get a more aggressive one, put an assault weapons ban in it. And I'm going to start engaging with these nonsense attacks and Rumson, like... If you want to make any smears, come for me, because Sidney Allen Wade is way out of your league. I'm Andrew Shepard, and I am the president. It was pretty epic. It's a great speech. It was a great speech. Well delivered. And then he, like, gets out of that press conference, and it's like, all right, I want to figure out how to meet Sidney, and she's already there. Very conveniently. And then they have this sort of textbook Aaron Sorkin reunion exchange. Oh, one other point on that. Since when is being a card-carrying member of the ACLU like a radical thing? I could 100% see segments of the Republican Party using that as evidence of someone being a radical. But, like, the press wouldn't buy it the way that press bought it. I don't know that the press buys it, per se. They want to know whether it's true or not. They're like, oh, Rumson says you are one. Are you? Are you? But, like, that suggests they've bought into the premise. Anyway, the president says to her, I wrote this down. No, you've got it. Oh. So 455 is the bill in the House on oh, the environmental bill. Oh, got it, got it. Okay, yeah. so he's like, I didn't send 455 to the floor to get you back. And then she says, I didn't come back because you sent 455 to the floor. And I'm like, oh, it's DC and I love it. So they have this nice moment of political union, but also they get to make out. Yeah, which is the, like, main goal of both of them throughout this whole movie. Exactly. They get to have both things. Yes. Both and. Not either or. And that's where the movie ends. And that's where the movie ends. Guys, based on our conversation, I think we might have an answer. But do you find this romance believable? Obviously not. No way. This is one of the least believable romances we've done in a while. I love this movie, but its romance is a clown car. Where would you actually rate it? Low. Um, so, Allie, we rate the romance of every movie on a 10-point scale, where 0 is we believe none of it, and 10 is we believe all of it. 100% this could totally happen. So given that scale, where do you think the American president belongs? Like, maybe a 1, like, generously. I was leaning towards a 2 or a 3 based off of the other movies we've given 1s to. I think I'm probably a 2 on this movie, because... I believe that these two people would be attracted to each other. That's fair. They have a similar passion and energy. They clearly get along really well when they're interacting with one another. So I buy that. That said, I think both of them are too smart to get involved in this relationship. Right. And also, I love Annette Benning, but now that you have mentioned Emma Thompson, now I can't stop thinking about Emma Thompson. So She would be great in this movie. She would be so good. Annette I'm also, actually, I will admit, imagining Emma Thompson as she appears in Late Night, which yeah. would be a cool way to do it. Totally. 
Annette Benning, fun fact. I don't, you watched Liberty's Kids. We've talked about this. She voiced Abigail Adams. Of course she did. Yep. What a weird show that was. It was so good, though. Remember the little French kid they hung out with? <laughs> yeah, Ulrich. I also had the Liberty's Kids computer game. I feel like I might have also had that, but I don't remember. Your classic point-and-click educational game. Right, right. Um, Mark, where do you think you would rate this one? I'm going to go with the two. What the heck is Liberty's Kids? Liberty's Kids was a a PBS animated show about... The American Revolution. Kids in the American Revolution. There was a girl and a guy and a little French boy. Walter Cronkite plays Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin is a main series character. They all like hang out out of Benjamin Franklin's print shop. There's like a freed African-American who is Ben Franklin's assistant in the print shop, and they hang out with him a bunch, too. Excuse me. Sylvester Stallone plays Paul Revere? I mean, that checks out. So it's mostly New England-based. Like, well, it's mostly, like, Philadelphia and North, because that's where the most interesting non-Yorktown stuff of the war happens. I knew about Kosciuszko because of that series, and then everyone in my history class hated me. And that is a hundred percent where I learned about Fort Ticonderoga. Oh, hundred percent. And was the girl was her were her parents like Tories or something? Was that the like? I don't remember. Or, was she just fancy? <laughs> I just remember that Henri was really into food. They're like, oh, he's French. He probably likes food. Like, I don't. Know. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> do you think that President Andrew Shepard or Sidney Ellen Wade would be dateable? I think they would both be highly dateable. Just like it's hard to But like together. for you. But for oh yeah. I would date either of them. Well, I mean they're both really smart, they're really passionate, they're like pretty attractive, they're funny, you know, that's all I'm looking for in a partner, so I would definitely date either of them. Uh, dating the president would be hard, I think, for a lot of reasons, explored in this episode already. But um no, I think they're both dateable and I think Shepard's daughter is awesome. Like, she's the most dateable. She doesn't have enough fun reading the Constitution for me. Really? Yeah. She has the appropriate amount of fun reading the Constitution for me. I agree with Allie. The only way that scene would be better would be if Shepard started singing the Schoolhouse Rock preamble song, which I believe he would do. I, he would. That was an error on the part of Aaron Sorkin. Or they couldn't get the Or rights. the rights. Yeah. I feel like those rights are cheap. I think I would date Sidney Allen Wade. Shepard... I don't know. He's got some condescension issues, I'd say. I would definitely date Sydney. She's cool. She's passionate. She's smart. She knows what she wants. I think I probably would date Shepard. He seems mostly like a fun dude, even if he has maybe poor impulse control. Right. Yeah. If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date any character, who would it be? I think it would be the press secretary. Anna Devere Smith? Yeah, I don't remember her character's name at all. I can't remember. I believe her character is named Anna Devere Smith. Yep, probably. I mean, yeah, she's fun. She's got the jokes coming. She's no nonsense. Get it done. My instinct was Louis Rothschild, um, but that would also be very hard because he would not care about you at all because all he cares about is his job in sort of a Lyman-esque fashion. Sure. So I guess I would go with Martin Sheen's character, AJ. He seemed like a fun guy. Happily married, but like a His wife seems guy. cool. His wife seems very cool. I'm like, maybe I date his wife. I don't know. Like, That's a strong take that I had not <laughs> thought of, and I might go with that. There was a part of me that wanted to say David Paymer as the pollster, because he's got this just like... Weird energy. Weird energy that I'm really tapping into, where he seems very good at his job, but also just has no time for everyone's nonsense. Do you want to date him or do you just want to be him? I think I want to be him. Except I embrace too much nonsense to be him. I think he might be a good temper on me. 
But now I'm thinking maybe Martin Sheen's wife. Yeah, I think Martin Sheen's wife. Yeah, she's great. Do we think that President Shepard and Sidney Allen Wade would stay together? I think they have to stay together for a while for politics reasons. At least through the election. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I don't think you, like, do all of that and then be like, oh, just kidding. Like, I like someone else or whatever. Yeah. I, think I could see them staying together. It's got lasting power, I'd say. Yeah. Now, Allie, many of the movies that we have discussed on this show have been turned into stage musicals. An absurd number. A ludicrous number. Including Ocean's Eleven being turned into a Japanese all-female cabaret. We've tried hard to get video. We can't find it. <laughs> Should the American president be made into a stage musical? Yes. Uh, I think it would be appropriate for the moment, and I think the characters would translate well on stage, and I would like to see some White House tap numbers, frankly. I mean, recently there was a musical adaptation of Dave, another presidential movie from this era. I did not know that. It only happened at Arena. That sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, I also think this would make a pretty fun musical. It has the appropriate level of nonsense. I think the president elopes exclamation point should be a musical. Now we're talking. Can we get Robert Redford to be in that? I don't know if he'd be a song and dance man these days. I'm really into old Redford energy. Me too. But I think that the American president, eh, the president elopes. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. All in. We could get him and Sissy Spacek to do it as a Old Man and the Gun reunion, but with songs. And, like, maybe in the style of the drowsy chaperone, that kind of, like, resonates with me for that title. Do you think Redford could tap? I think there's only one way to find out. I'll call him later. Please do. All right. Well, I think that about does it for our discussion of the American president. Next week, we will be discussing an infuriating movie. A movie that makes less sense than this one. Next week, we are talking about the time travel, but mostly that part's ignored movie, Kate and Leopold from 2001. That movie is insane. Until next week, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps other people to find the show. Last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? I think we already explained it earlier in this episode. I do, but I want to hear Allie's answer before I give my own. I guess you can date the president. <laughs> like, sure. <laughs> reach for the stars is, I guess, what I took away from this. It doesn't work if we all try to do that. That's true. But, you know, even someone you think is totally out of your league, they may or may not be the president. Just go for it. Just go for it. All right. I think mine, it's obvious. There's an increasing theme where mine are about food. Send ham. You send them ham. Send ham. Okay. It's what the movie's telling us. And I think I can't offer any better than that. So until next time, I am a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Justice ensure domestic tranquility. Provide for the common defense. Promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty. To ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of. Oh.